0: Welcome to the first episode of a new season of Classic Coverage, the podcast that looks at classic movies back when they were just screenplays. My name is Max Davison. I'm your host. I'm a writer. I'm a director. I'm a showman. I'm a USC Film School graduate. I'm a UCB Herald team auditioner. And for a hot second, I was almost an assistant set decorator on a movie called Thaw. That's right, we are doing another season of the show. And if you detect just a hint of bitterness or righteous indignation in my voice, you are not mistaken. Because at the end of last season, I thought that we were moving past development hell and going actually into the world of production and movie making. As you may recall, we were moving into production on a movie called Thaw, about a cryogenically frozen and unfrozen detective. And in this installment, he would be fighting crime in the 23rd century. But despite that derivative concept, Antoine Fuqua Came on to direct, and that brought Miles Teller to star as the titular Jericho Thaw. And so we were about to move into production, and I was working with the art team and learning a lot. And, well, as soon as they started the shoot, Fuqua dropped out. He said that there were script problems, and I'm not going to argue with him on that, especially as the one who first read the script. And then I I raised my hand and volunteered that, hey, I I can rewrite this on on set if you need me to. Uh, They just kind of ignored me, but that's their call. And then without a director, our star dropped out. And then as we were still moving into production, uh, well, technically the official wording is an act of God caused production to be stopped immediately. And well, thankfully the production company in the studio, they filed an insurance claim and that netted them more than they lost on the days of pre-production and production. So they actually turned a profit on this and I should not be talking about that because I think it's an insurance scam. It's possibly a felony. And I think it's the plot of Tropic Thunder, maybe the producers. So, uh, you know what, uh, You know, I'm going to have to edit this out. And that means I'm going to have to go on YouTube to find a tutorial on how to bleep things in GarageBand. But, uh, you know, you know I'll, I'll take care of that down the line. But that means we are back to the drawing board. And I am back to the development intern desk at this one production company. Uh, I will not say which studio I'm at for the sake of uh, protecting myself from another lawsuit. But I will say that I took the Metro to get here today. And I was watching a movie starring Tony Goldwyn, who's one hell of an actor. And for lunch, I had Oscar Mayer baloney. So I am back here reading scripts at the development desk where I'm sandwiched between the copier and the Keurig machine. And I need to keep reading scripts to find a new property that might be decent for this production company. Although I will say that uh, since I technically was the first person to read Thaw, they gave me a promotion. Yeah, I am now officially development coordinator which is a great title bump. I'm still not making any money. But unfortunately, development coordinator was the fake job title that I had already enlisted this job as on my resume. So now I have to create a new promoted fake job title to show that I'm going in the right direction at this company. So I'm thinking I'm going to call myself the junior vice president of story. And with the junior and vice part of that job, I think it's just self-deprecating enough in being you know, shamelessly boastful. So maybe you know the... WME mailroom won't call bullshit on it when I submit my resume to them. Again, Uh, the other uh, benefit to this is that they got me my own intern. Yay! Uh, His name is Caleb. Typical. He is at Chapman Film School, and he's getting college credit for this. Uh, Typical. Oh, God, he is, he's something else. He's just always, always wanting to talk and complain and no, 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 Caleb. No, no, no. If I have these headphones on, we can't talk because I'm doing the podcast. No, no, you can't be a guest. Well, one, I only have one microphone and so it would just be completely, oh, oh, what's it? You found a plot hole in a script you're covering? Well, that's great. Don't tell me about it. Just write it down. No, I don't want to talk about this character. Dev- no, no, no. After the headphones are off. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. You had to hear that. Uh, but the good thing about having Caleb here is that I get to relegate all of the truly crap scripts to him so that I get to read the the good crap. And like right now, I've got him reading everything off of last year's Blacklist. And the Blacklist is a list of all the top unproduced scripts in Hollywood. And when you read them, you understand why they never got produced. You get things that are well-written but not marketable, like stories about drug-addicted illegal immigrants trying to take care of foster children Or on the flip side, you get ironically detached looks at pop culture figures, like uh, I have Caleb reading the Alex Trebek biopic, all questions and no answers. So while Caleb is wading through that pretentious sea of the blacklist, I am reading, as I said, the good-bad scripts. Uh, There's a new Max Landis script out called Sudden. And uh, it starts off as a Jungle Cruise script, kind of like the African Queen. And then on page 11, it switches over to being an outer space heist movie. And I don't mean like he switches settings or scenery. I mean he took pages 11 through 20 of a completely different script and then copied and pasted them here. And then uh, page 21 to 30 is about World War One, only with robot assassins, and I guess it's taking place in another multiversal Earth. And he keeps doing this every 10 pages with a different script. And then at one point we get 10 pages of Star Wars. And I don't mean we get a story like Star Wars. I mean that he took the actual script from Star Wars A New Hope cut-and-pasted the trash compactor scene, and then put it right in the middle of his own screenplay. It is only 83 pages long, and it sold to Sony last week for $3 million. Yep, that's right. I'm not jealous or bitter at all. Uh, So this week, I decided that I was going to hop in the golf cart and drive over to the vault and look at another experimental script. But this one might be a little bit more, well, let's just say expertly executed than what I've been reading this past week. So we're going to be reading the original script notes, the classic coverage, for a script from the early 90s, one you might know as Pulp Fiction. Script title, Pulp Fiction. Screenwriter, Quentin Tarantino. And then the words, and also Roger Avery, are scribbled on the title page in red sharpie. Genre, drama, slash comedy, slash crime, question mark? Page count, 163. Draft date, July 9, 1990. Logline. Multiple storylines intersect in Los Angeles as two hitmen attempt to recover a mysterious briefcase, a boxer attempts to flee town, and a diner holdup goes awry. Comments. Pulp Fiction is a script that has everything. A heroin overdose. Snappy dialogue. A nonlinear story. Bible verses. A gimp. A watch two men cleaning bits of human brains out of a sedan in a suburban garage. Death by Katana. Yes, this is a script that has everything, except for a decent act structure. There is no clear inciting incident, no climax, and no real arc to the story. It was difficult to even devise a cohesive logline for this sprawling, seemingly aimless story. The script is a random assortment of stories thrown together in a non-linear fashion. You might call it an Annie Hall crime drama. Yes, the dialogue is above average, featuring likable yet sociopathic characters, but there is no real protagonist. While Vincent receives a good portion of the page count, there is no resolution to his arc. Similarly, there is no resolution to the plot at all. The lack of a clear trajectory or point of view means that this is a script that prides overkill rather than consistency. Mr. Tarantino's script focuses on sociopaths, killers, and mobsters. No one is innocent, not a straight man in the bunch. With dozens of characters running around, Vincent and Jules are our de facto protagonists. While this is only accomplished thanks to the nonlinear structure, Jules Winfield is the only character to have a pronounced arc. He goes from being an agent of violence to, quote, trying real hard to be the shepherd, as he says on page 124. He uses the same Bible verse to demonstrate his character growth, although this reader checked and the book of Ezekiel does not, in fact, have that exact passage. Contrasting with Jules' intellectualism, Vincent is a simple hitman, with simple urges and simple needs. This is demonstrated when he talks to himself in the mirror in the bathroom before taking Mia Wallace out on a date. Having returned from Europe, not sure what exactly this bit of backstory accomplishes other than to have him talking about drugs, Vincent is attempting to re-establish a presence back home. This could be a strong supporting role for any actor. These two hitmen own most of the best dialogue in the script discussing the differences between America and the Netherlands, as well as the difference between washing your hands versus rinsing them. The rest of the cast, however, is somewhat static, not offering much development. Mia, the kept woman slash former one-time TV pilot co-star, is charming, but what lesson does she learn other than don't snort heroin? Butch Coolidge is a duty-bound boxer with one goal, then he achieves it, and rides off into the sunset. Marcellus Wallace hints that he might change his behavior going forward, but will most likely try to ignore what he endured. The wolf is a case where knowing less about his backstory adds to his mystique. Oddly enough, the script opens with ten pages dedicated to Honey Bunny and Pumpkin, who then disappear for the next 138 pages. While it offers some good payoff later on, why do we invest so much real estate in two supporting characters who don't even factor in until the denouement on page 148? As stated before, there is no one through-line to the film, and this is readily apparent as there is no true villain. Marcellus Wallace could be seen as filling this role, but the only person he antagonizes really is Butch. And Zed is far too underdeveloped to be seen as the key foe. The Butch storyline feels as though it came out of another script altogether. It is different in tone and scope, and is a bit isolated from the other events, despite inserting Vincent and Marcellus for the sake of continuity. Consider the long conversation in the cab between Butch and Esmeralda Villalobos. It doesn't amount to much at all. While not a bad storyline, it's a bit distinct and feels odd in its placement in the script. Tonally, the screenplay vacillates between comedy, crime, drama, and absurdist humor. The dance contest at the 50s-themed restaurant is followed by an overdose and a needle in the heart. By the way, it would require an immensely visual director to get anything out of the one-paragraph description where Vincent and Mia simply dance the twist. Pulp Fiction relies heavily on violence, causing this reader to wonder if this will be a marketable film. The script follows up a rape scene with a katana death. Is this overkill? Violence for violence sake? Marvin gets his head blown off, but there is no real resonance since we never meet him as a character. Maybe a flashback sequence explaining how Marvin turned to a life of crime would make this moment really ring true. As stated before, the script's dialogue is quippy and ping-pongy, leading to a very fast read, which is quite the accomplishment for a 163-page script. But does the dialogue drive the plot forward or reveal anything about our characters occasionally it demonstrates personality such as when marcellus lectures butch about pride but more often than not the dialogue goes on for pages and pages at a time about foot massages and european burger joints and what fabian is going to order for breakfast me and vincent even talk about trying to find something to say on page 48. while sharp many of these conversations are too wordy and can be cut down Captain Coon's monologue about Butch's grandfather's watch, which covers pages 66 to 68, can probably take up no more than less than one page. The script relies almost entirely on MacGuffins in order to drive the narrative. Butch's watch comes out of nowhere, but we're told that it's important enough to warrant the middle third of our story. At the end of the script, we still have no idea what is within the briefcase, although the story is so self-aware, even providing a table of contents and chapter titles that I would have guessed that the briefcase contains the Ark of the Covenant, or whatever was in the trunk at the end of Repo Man. The briefcase raises more questions than it answers. How did Brett and his goons get their hands on it? The seemingly inept crew sets the movie in motion, but it's unclear how they managed to steal from Marcellus Wallace. At the end of the day, I struggle to determine what this script is trying to tell us. It is all over the place with regards to character, location, timing, and thematic elements, or is there logic to the randomness, Are we trying to find meaning and chaos on La Dondolillo's white noise? Or is it possible that I'm putting much too thought into this story? Disclosure, this reader was a comparative literature major at Emerson. Jules remarks that perhaps a miracle saved his life, an act of God, or perhaps it was coincidence. Well, perhaps the script is insightful, and perhaps it is garbage, and this reader always errs on the side of garbage. Recommendation, pass. Well, there you have it. And that reader makes some rather insightful points about Pulp Fiction, a script that was trying a little bit too hard to be edgy and flashy. And that's a criticism that you can levy against a lot of the scripts that wind up on the blacklist. Like, you know, do we really need a fake Alex Trebek biopic? I mean, what, what is that serving? Although, it gives me an idea, maybe I should go follow up and finally finish up my fake Christian Leitner biopic. Maybe that's got legs. You know what? No, no, never mind. I'm not that desperate. Although next week, tune in, because I'm going to start talking about my Patreon, and you can learn all about the fun rewards you can get for donating to this show. So as we wrap up, I'd like to thank Noah Goldberg, as always, for the fantastic theme music. Uh, my name is Max Davison, and... ooh, uh, uh, The sound that you may or may not have heard was that of a coffee mug accidentally uh, breaking. Uh, it. I'm trying to read the shards as I... Pick them up. Uh, it says the Brentwood Children's School. Oh, oh God, this belongs to my boss. This belongs to somebody rich. Um, okay, I can probably blame this on Caleb. Okay, that's why God gave us interns. But uh, the problem is, is that the coffee spilled on a script and it is staining the pages. It is bleeding through right now. And there isn't a cover page on the script. And so I should probably read it very quickly before uh, it is illegible. Huh, what do you know? I have work to do a sentence that I never thought I would utter. Uh, So as I go off to, uh, God forbid, actually do my job, uh, I have to sign off. So my name is Max Davison reminding you as always that even the classics use another pass of notes.